Good morning, I'm Carl Griggs from CPC Finance and today I'm here with Paul Kane from Ronald Fletcher Baker to discuss legal processes and matters. Um, good morning, I'm Paul Kane, as Carl just said, from Ronald Fletcher Baker's Solicitors. Um, I'm an equity partner in the firm. Um, we're a full service law firm, but um, with a keen interest in, in property. Um, I uh, run up the secured lending department, head up the secured lending department, uh, but also uh, deal with all property related matters, such as commercial and residential conveyancing, secured lending, bridging lending, uh, and development. Well, we've been working together for well, probably over 10 years now. Um, and in that time, everything's evolved. Um, how are you finding the, the market at the moment? Well, it's been a tricky few months, hasn't it? Um, of course, we had the boom over the last couple of years um, during the COVID and post-COVID, where we were um, both incredibly busy, weren't we? Yeah. Um, it's kind of died down the last, the last few months um, because... Um, obviously, the mortgage mortgage interest rates have, have gone through the roof, and and the, the market's kind of settled. Um, as a result, I, I, I kind of found that the level of instructions have reduced. Um, however, you know, as a result, I think there's still a lot of opportunity out there for for people who know property and and developers and people who who don't know property because prices are coming down, and as a result, you know, there's there's, mm -hmm. there's scope to to get involved and and start buying with with. The time we got now is um, particularly new people to the market. So obviously we arrange the finance and the mortgage offer, you do the legal side. Sometimes people run it parallel, sometimes they wait for the offer. What would you suggest? Um, well, I mean, the, the, uh, as, it, as it stands, I mean, we would not, um, I wouldn't feel comfortable a lot of the time um, exchanging contracts for a client uh, without having a mortgage offer in place. However, as, as you know, uh, Carl, recently it's taking some lenders incredible amount of time to get offers out, um, and even more so in the last few months. I mean, we, we had a really busy period, which means the lenders were really busy, um, and as a result, it was taking longer to get offers out. But now, I mean, they, their kind of due diligence process, um, as you'll know more than me, has kind of really increased, and it's taken them quite a time, quite a while to get their offers out. So. I think they need to run parallel. I mean, yeah. I mean, so you're not wasting any time, um, and you know, sellers can get frustrated. I think it needs to run parallel. So, I think that it's a good idea to instruct a broker and a solicitor at the same time. Agreed. Um, so we can get to work at the same time, um, and 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 hopefully by the time the offer has been issued, the legal process would have been quite far advanced. With with, with the delays in the mortgage offer side. How is that affecting the negotiations with the other side? Are, are, are people losing properties or going yeah, back on the market? They, they can be. I mean, if, you, if you've got a seller, if you've agreed a deal and you've got a seller who wants a reasonably quick sale, for example, and um, you, you, you put a halt on the legal process until you get the mortgage offer out, you could be in a, period, in a position where you're, you're, you know, you're waiting four, five weeks without doing anything. <clears throat> and if a seller has instructed his own solicitor, which he will do, that's the first thing he will do once a sale has been agreed. 
if they if the solicitor's not had anything to do for four weeks because um, a buyer is waiting for their mortgage offer, then it's likely that they could potentially pull out. One of, one of the main changes that we've seen in the mortgage process is proof of funds and proof of wealth. Now, we have to get it for the lender, but then you also have to get it for your side. Yeah. So although it, sometimes the clients say, well, why do you need it if they're doing it? We're doing it for one reason, for the lending. You have to do it for your own side. How are you finding all of that at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's quite difficult. You, you know, we're heavily regulated as solicitors and we have to comply with the anti-money laundering regulations. Mm. Um, so kind of our onboarding process is that when we are first instructed by a client, we have to, first of all, check their ID so to make sure they are who they say they are because <laughs> um, there was a lot of fraud that goes around. Yeah. Um, so we would have to, first of all, get their, their ID and two forms of proof of address. Um, and we would typically want that certified either by us if we meet face to face or if they're, if they're not local, another solicitor or the post office as well offer that, that service. And the, 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 but more importantly, we would want to check their source of funds. So we have to make sure that the funds that we receive are, um, are not criminal proceeds, essentially. Yeah. Um, so, so the way we do that is we ask for um, some documentary evidence as to where the funds that they're using to purchase the property have come from. Um, now, typically, you know, you get you get sometimes you younger investors as well. They're, they're they're borrowing money from parents or or from third parties, and if that if that's the case, then we would also need to get the ID of those of that third party <laughs> and have a paper trail of where that, where that money's come from. Um, so sometimes it can seem like we're prying, but it's something unfortunately we cannot avoid. We're bound by those regulations, so we would need to get things like bank statements. Uh, showing if the money's come from savings, the build-up of those funds, or pay slips if it, if it's from employment, or um, if it's from a refinance of another property, the completion statement, as well as the bank statement showing the funds going into that bank account. I think we touched on earlier, before we started filming, you get stuff like winning the lottery and you get a payment. There's always a paper trail. Yeah. One of the um, growing areas for deposit that we're finding is investor loans. Right. So how do you cover that off? Well, again, you know, if it's investor loans, so you mean loans from a third party, essentially. Yeah, behind the mortgage behind, lender. Behind the mortgage lender. So, um, yeah, again, we would need to do, we would need the paper trail evidence. So we'd need to find out who that investor is, um, find out where their source of funds come from. So we'd need their bank statements, for example. Um, and we need to, to certify their ID um, and find out who they are. Um, the problem is a lot of lenders... Um, don't necessarily like that situation, but there's things you can do to alleviate their concerns. Um, we would, first of all, um, a lender would want to make sure, so what can happen, in, that person who's lent the money has an interest in the property. Yeah, uh, They automatically have an interest in the, mon in, in the property because they've contributed towards the purchase price. So lenders would want to make sure that they have um, priority over that that interest yeah. this third party has. So we can, we can enter into various... Uh, types of deed or agreements, like a deed of priority or a deed of subordination to make sure that the lender has priority. That's, that's the first thing. Um, and, and secondly, um, we, can, we can have what's called a letter of gift or a deed of gift. So th this, the, if it's an investor, you wouldn't typically get that no. because someone would essentially give up their rights to, that, to, to the property. Also, you have to disclose the agreement, if there is one, yeah. to the lender and that can affect their decision yeah, as well. So, so if, if you... If you're using a broker who hasn't done their job properly, which wouldn't be you, Carl, of course. Thank you. 
Um, <laughs> if you're using a job, a broker hasn't done their job properly, then you know sometimes they can apply to get the loan and they haven't told the lender where the money's coming from. And then if we find out in the conveyancing process that money's come from a third party, we would have to disclose that to the yeah. lender. So it's can, again, it's better off disclosing everything up front. Yes. Because also from the broking side, we then know what lenders accept investors' agreements. Some don't. Yeah. Um, and that way it makes it a, a lot smoother process. Yeah. Um, talk about smoother process. One of the big areas where people buy properties, auction finance. Yeah. Auction properties, sorry. Right. So is there any tips that you would suggest? Because, you know, you could be uh, a four to six week period of completion, which, as you said, with mortgages mm, can be a time. delay. Yeah. Um, that is the, you know, I would say probably 80% of finance on auction will be on a bridge. Yeah. Um, is there in a different process or is there things that you would suggest? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, there's kind of four key stages in the conveyancing process, which is, you know, your pre-exchange, um, exchange, completion, post-completion. So um, the exchange, the pre-exchange uh, part of the process is essentially when a solicitor will do all the due diligence on the property, uh, raise inquiries with the seller solicitors. What an auction does is remove that part of the process, um, mm -hmm. essentially, because it's being sold at auction which means that you can't necessarily, you don't typically can't raise inquiries with the seller solicitors. There'll be an auction pack that's loaded online and um, you know the highest bidder on the day wins. So things to look out for for, for the auction, as you said, you know, it's a, so what happens, you'd, you'd exchange at auction and then you'd have a, a, an agreed completion date of six weeks, so, or four to six weeks. So if you're buying with a mortgage, um, I would advise that you speak to a broker first before you bid at auction to make sure that you can get a kind of an agreement in principle yeah. in place to make sure that they're able to send you the funds. But also try and agree with the auctioneer um, that, that they're going to let you have access in between exchange and completion. Because once the hammer goes down and you've purchased at auction, unless you've got an agreement in place, the, uh, the seller can refuse access. Yeah. Which if you ha haven't got access, then the mortgage can't send their, value, their valuer in, they can't do the valuation of the property and you're going to have an issue. If they don't, if, it, if it's not a desktop valuation where there's yeah. not a physical inspection yeah. of the property. Um, the other things that you should typically look out for at auction is there are sometimes hidden costs and fees. So um, they're, quite, they're quite tricky. They can be worded quite in quite a tricky way or a sneaky way where um, the contract will say that on top of the purchase price, a buyer would have to pay the seller's legal fees uh, and their agent's fees um, which sometimes can be as much as 2% of the purchase price, which will massively increase the purchase price. So just make sure you look out for those. I always, I always compare it uh, to like buying a second-hand car. Yeah. And you buy an ad scene. And on the auction, once, as you say, once the hammer's gone down, if you've missed something, that's your problem. Yeah, it is. No one else's. Yeah, so once you've exchanged contracts at auction, um, you, you typically fund 10% of the deposit. And if you do not complete on the completion date, you'll lose your 10% deposit mm -hmm. and um, you can be sued for any damages the seller suffers as a result. Um, so you need to make sure that um, you instruct a solicitor to review the auction pack, um, to have a look through what's online, tell you what's missing, um, tell you if there's any issues with the property so you can make uh, an informed decision as to whether you want to proceed. And I would also give the solicitor some time because sometimes I get a call yeah. The, the night before the auction. I might know who you're referring to there. <laughs> the night before the auction and asked me to look at an auction pack. So make sure you give, you know, you know, you know when the auction is, you've got a few weeks notice, 
make sure you instruct a solicitor. And look, it's probably worth, a solicitor's probably charged between 500 and 1,000 pounds to look at an auction pack plus, plus VAT. Uh, it's, it's worth paying that money. Um, right. yeah. If you lose your 10%, exactly. it's, it's exactly. a little out there. And, it, and it's a business expense. Yeah. So just, just on that point of buying a property, either at auction or, an, or, or normally, when you exchange, that's when you should put the building's insurance on. Correct, yeah. A lot of people come out and don't realise, particularly at auctions, oh, well, I don't have to do it till completion. No, I mean, the standard conditions, there's two different um, conditions of sale, the auction conditions and the standard conditions, and they can be varied. So sometimes, most of the time, it is the buyer's responsibility to, on exchange of contracts, insure the property. So if anything happens in between exchange and completion to the property, and it burns down, for example, or there's a huge, uh, you know, or it floods, as we've been seeing a lot uh, recently, it's your responsibility. So um, if it's not insured, not only will you not get paid from the insurers, but the mortgage lender won't lend the money. If they're not going to yeah. lend on a property, then and again, you lose your money. And again, you lose your 10% deposit, yeah. And would would you then be sued by the person selling as well? Yeah. Because so they've if, lost their property. So so no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. You can't, so, so you're on, if you if you you're in breach of contract if you do not complete on the yeah. on the on the completion date. So it's your responsibility to insure the contract uh, to insure the property on complete on exchange. So if you haven't, yes, you are in breach of contract. Yeah. So you can be sued for damages as a result of, yeah. not, of failing to insure. Sort of leads on to another point about like obviously buildings insurance, but um, we do a lot of HMO finance with you. Yeah. Um, with our clients, um, and there's two areas on the HMO that keep popping up, or people get confused: planning and licensing. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a common error that people make. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, HMOs are heavily regulated. Um, and they're, they're essentially, you know, the government is trying to keep those tenants safe in the building. But so there's, there's two ways um, they are regulated. It's planning and licensing, which are mutually exclusive things. Um, so for a property to be converted to an HMO, um, if it, as long as there's six people in the property, up to six people, it is permitted development. Yeah. So you can convert a normal house to an HMO without planning mm -hmm. for up to six people. It depends though. There are lots of local boroughs that have withdrawn those permitted development rights. Yeah. So you, you will need full planning to convert a normal house to an HMO in a particular area, for example. You will, any, any HMOs that are over six people, it's known as sui generis HMO, um, which means it's in a use class of its own. That's the definition. So you will need full planning permission from the local authority. And by doing the conversion and getting a license, that doesn't cover off the no. planning. So a license is a different thing. So anyone can apply to the council for an HMO license if the property is being used as an HMO. And as long as you satisfy certain criteria, um, such as things like having a fire risk assessment in, in place, the rooms are a certain size, you have emergency lighting, etc. The council will typically grant the HMO license, but if you've been granted an HMO license um, and you haven't got planning, you can still you're still in breach of yeah. planning. Yeah. So people tend to think the fact that they've got an HMO license in place means that they have a you know a, a, a legal HMO, which they don't if they haven't yeah. got planning in place. I think their view is, well, the council know about this. Yeah, exactly. Well, but so they are different departments yeah. that don't communicate. Yeah. Uh, so um, comment so, I was going to make. They yeah. don't talk to each other. No, they don't. They don't communicate. You know. So so the fact you have an HMO license does not not mean it's automatically a legal HMO. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, the, you can have planning but lack of a license. So just because you've got planning in place for an HMO, and you, if you haven't got a license, it's still illegally let. Yeah. And there can be massive issues for an unlicensed HMO because it's a criminal offence. You can be fined up to mm -hmm. twenty thousand pounds. 
Um, you can have a, a rent repayment order made, which means that the, the, the time it's been operating as an HMO and that rent can be recovered and paid back to the tenants for the whole period that it's not had a license in place. Yeah. So you have to make sure that you, um, that you have both planning and a license in place. It's essential. Because that, that, that sort of um, is the sort of things that you would check out on uh, going back to the packs, the auction stuff. Yeah. Um, one of the other areas sometimes that comes up, and I don't know how this affects on the auction side, is if the property is unregistered. Yeah. Now, would that still could can that still go into auction? Yeah, a property can still go on into auction when it's unregistered. So, um, all property now has to be registered yeah. at the land registry. But there's still some properties that were typically owned by elderly people mm-hmm. um, that that um, that haven't been registered with the land registry. Um, it makes our job a, li- a little bit more difficult because things like um, any restrictions in relation to the properties and, and covenants that affect the properties or rights that affect the properties or or, or the property has the benefit of are normally set out at the land registry. Yeah. Um, and we can see them on the official copy entries or the deeds that are attached to the official copy, copy entries. With unregistered lands, um, sometimes you have documents that were drafted in you know, the 1800s or, or early 1900s, um, <laughs> and you have to read those documents. It can be kind of you know, A3 size and very faint ink. And yeah. uh, sometimes it's very difficult to, to kind of decipher what, what the property has the benefit of and what and and, and burden of, so um, it makes our job a little bit more difficult. But it can still be sold at auction, and it can still be sold. Yeah, and there is on occasions where some of those documents are missing because they, are. they go back they are. 100, 100 odd years. Yeah, so if those documents are missing, um, there's certain way things we can do to kind of alleviate any risk. Uh, things like indemnity policy. So if there are documents missing that contain deeds and covenants. Um, then uh, we can we can try and get an unknown covenant indemnity policy, which is insurance in the event that somebody comes forward and says, you know, you can't use this property yeah. as for a certain way. Um, but the other thing that to make to, to to point out as well, if you can't if you can't show who the owner was, uh, and there's no documents showing the paper trail of ownership or the chain of ownership, sometimes you can only register the property what, as what's known as possessory title, yeah. so Instead not of, title absolute. Yeah. Yeah. So when it's possessory title, title, a lot of lenders don't like that. Um, so, so sort of notifying them that there isn't a full trail. Yeah, it's so notifying the land registry that it's not a full trail, and somebody can kind of kind of come forward potentially and claim that this property belongs to them. Again, you can get insurance to cover that as well. Mm-hmm. So, if we, one of our problems as a mortgage broker, um, and I don't include you in the next bit, I'm going to say, <laughs> is that. People think that our job is just to get the mortgage offer. And sometimes people get the mortgage offer and they have no more contact till completion. What we do is that we like to chase through, get the deal, because as, a, as a, a company, our business, we don't get paid unless it completes. Yeah. So it's in our interest to do it, as well as get the clients their property. How do you find working with brokers and, and, and that? Because sometimes we can help chase it when you send stuff to the lenders as well, because it, as you quite rightly said earlier, in the process, um, they're behind and they're slow. So they do need chasing, but yep. it's not always your job to do that. No, I mean, I think it massively helps for a broker to be involved in the conveyancing process. Um, and, uh, you know, we've worked together, as you said, for, for a long time. And it's nice that we keep each other copied into mm-hmm. emails, etc. cetera, uh, especially with bridging and kind of development finance, uh, because um, because it's not, it's not kind of you just get the offer 
and and um, and you let the, the solicitor do their conveyancing. Yeah. Uh, with bridging and development finance, um, you being heavily involved really carries some weight, especially for the lender. If the lender if the lender solicitors are being slow, for example, yeah. uh, typically the broker has the uh, relationship with the lender directly and can kind of um, try and assist in, in moving the process along. Because one of the other uh, things is also they refer a lot to their client, i.e. the bank. Yeah. And and that can be where it slows down as well. And you wouldn't have a contact with No, them. exactly. I don't have a direct contact with the bank. When I'm when I'm writing to the bank, it's kind of to to, to you know a, a general email address, yeah. an admin email address. Yeah. Whereas the broker has a direct contact with their relationship manager at the bank. Um, and uh, as a result, you know, can get things done quicker. Yeah. So if we need to, for example, we were discussing earlier the fact that there's a there's an investor, a third party investor. Mm-hmm. Um, if I need to contact the bank to say, look, this is the position. There's a third party investor. Um, uh, they can take sometimes weeks to respond. Whereas someone like you, Carl, would be able to contact the bank directly and could get a response in a day. Because I think sometimes also uh, we've got information that that helps speed it up. Um, and one of the, the examples of that is the valuation report. Yeah. Because we, we'll send it over to you. Exactly. Get the whole process in. Because that can raise questions as yeah. well. Yeah. 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 So, so um, yeah, sometimes we're not privy to the valuation. Um, it's, evaluation is done for the lender. It's not for the buyer. It's not for us. Mm-hmm. But you get that information. We wouldn't, wouldn't normally see that. But sometimes if you send that to me, I can look through it and, and, and check whether there's any issues that, yeah. that and, and kind of anticipate any issues that the That's lender it. solicitor is going to mm-hmm. come up with. Okay. Again, like the planning and licensing yeah. that we, we spoke about. That's great. Okay, so um, that finishes our chat today. Um, but if you want to get in touch with Paul, and of course we would highly recommend that you do, use him as a solicitor working with us, his contact details will be uh, shown. Be sure to like, share and subscribe as our next guest is Cyril Thomas on Mentoring.